From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Brain disorders remain such a mystery because scientists cannot study the relevant tissue in human subjects. But researchers at Upstate have a new biomarker grant from the National Institutes of Health, which they hope will help improve the study of brain disorders. With me are Professor Stephen Glatt and Dr. John Hess, an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, both of you. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Amber. Now, Dr. Glatt, you're the director of the Psychiatric Genetic Epidemiology and Neurobiology Lab at Upstate. Can you tell us what that is? Well, sure, and I know that's a mouthful, so we call it the PsychGene Lab, and it's a lab that I started back in 2009, just me and one other individual with a vision, which was that we were going to discover the determinants of mental illness and do something about it. And in the past 12 or 13 years, We've been kind of growing the lab and building out our resources and our project scope so that we study all sorts of psychiatric and, and neurodegenerative disorders to try and find what puts people at risk for those disorders, um, how we can better diagnose them, and what we can do about them. And what are biomarkers? How do you define that? Well, biomarkers can seem like a vague topic, but it actually has a standard definition, which is something that can be objectively measured. That's an indicator of health or disease or the response to a treatment. So a biomarker can really be anything that kind of ebbs and flows with the state of health or disease of an organism. In, in our case, we study humans. So would it be through a, a blood test? Would a biomarker be the cells that you can analyze from blood? Well, in many cases it is, and something like neuroimaging can serve as a biomarker or the chemical composition of a particular tissue. But in our case, we study blood and we scan blood for biomarkers because blood is routinely collected for clinical work anyway. So we might as well collect it for research purposes and look to see if we can identify biomarkers in a readily available blood sample. And the particular type of biomarker that we're most interested in is called messenger RNA, which is kind of the first output of the genome, if you will. And that is a, a chemical that's really written off or controlled by your DNA, so your genetics, but also your environment. We've been hearing a lot about messenger RNA or mRNA with COVID um, being, you know, that the a couple of the vaccines are described as mRNA vaccines, but that has nothing to do with what you're working on, right? Correct. It's a totally different use of mRNA than what we're doing. So in the case of the COVID vaccine, there's introduction of novel mRNA into individuals to create an immune response. But in our case, we're interested in studying just the natural rhythms of the mRNA that we're all producing all the time and to try and identify differences in the expression levels and the types of mRNAs that individuals are making, whether they have or don't have a particular disease. Well, let's talk about why researchers can't study the brain in human subjects or have challenges studying the brain in human subjects. Does the tissue have to be alive or could you study brains on autopsy? Well, in a way you can study the brain in living human subjects, but only at a very uh, superficial level. For example, functional MRI is a way to scan the brain and identify areas of it that are receiving more or less blood flow or oxygenation. And that's a proxy for how hard that brain area is working. 
But when you really want to get into the kind of molecular machinery of what's going on at the cellular level in the brain, you can't just stick a probe into the brain of a living human subject. It's unethical and it's dangerous. So you have to look for proxies. And that's why we've been looking in the blood to see, can we discern anything from the blood that might be reflective of what's going on in the brain? And that's where John's innovation with this new method has really helped open that door for us where before we really had no good insight into the molecular composition of the brain unless an individual was deceased. So Dr. Hess, tell me more about that. Yeah, so that there's a method we've now developed called the Brain Gene Expression and Network Imputation Engine, or Brain Genie. And, and what it is, is it's a, a software tool which is enabling us to make reliable predictions about the molecular composition of the brain solely based off of information we can glean from the blood. And uh, this is opening a brand new frontier for us because, as Steve alluded to, uh, there's there's a lot of challenges that go into understanding the brain in living people. So unless we were to perform neurosurgery and take a sample of brain tissue matter from someone and study it that way, there's there's really no other way we can make inferences or or, or uh, make measurements about the brain. So it's best in, in many cases to use some sort of surrogate to make um, predictions as opposed to performing neurosurgery. Um, so this brain genie tool is one in which we've collected data from other laboratories um, and we compile this data into a database upon which we built brain genie and essentially what we're doing is leveraging a database for which we have information about blood gene expression from the same individuals that also underwent autopsy and postmortem brain matter was also collected so it's a very unique data set, one in which there are very few other data sets like it. Um, because of that, that type of design to the data set where we have both tissues represented from the same individuals, it then allows us to build predictions using blood as a basis to make inferences about the brain. So you have these blood-based gene expressions for 8,000 people in this database, is that right? So the, the database itself that we developed the model off of is separate from the other database of 8,000 that we're looking to apply Brain Genie to. Then one that we developed the model off of comes from the Genotype Tissue Expression Project. The acronym for that is GTEx, and that has, um, data from about 800 or so individuals who donated their bodies to science after they had died. And that's what we're using for building the model. In terms of deploying the model, after training it, that's where the 8,000 um, subjects come into play from whom we have blood-based gene expression on these individuals who are alive. So we're trying to make inferences about their brain as they're alive to correlate um, changes that are occurring in the brain to psychiatric status. I see. So when you say blood-based gene expression, that's taking a blood sample to look at someone's genes. Is that what gene expression means? Correct. So blood-based gene expression is, is simply referring to the molecular composition of genes that are turned on in the blood um, at, at any given moment. And there are a host of different cell types that are circulating in peripheral blood. Um, 
the ones that we're typically targeting when referring to gene expression in the blood are the white blood cells. So these are, these are the cells that are typically involved in immune response and immune regulation. And so the, the cells in blood follow a particular genetic program telling them these are the genes that you need to express to be a white blood cell. And there are a host of other genetic programs that exist in the human body instructing cells what genes they need to turn on. Uh, for the brain, it expresses sets of genes that are very unique than the genes that are, that are expressed in blood, but there's a little bit of overlap that exists. And so brain gene is actually leveraging some of the similarities in terms of the genetic programs that exist between blood and brain to make predictions about the brain if we only have access to a person's blood sample. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. I'm speaking with two psychiatry and behavioral sciences researchers from Upstate, Dr. Stephen Glatt and Dr. John Hess, about their work to improve the study of brain disorders. So I wanna talk about what you hope to be able to learn from Brain Genie. Dr. Glatt? Well, Brain Genie is just the most exciting development, one of two really great developments that John's been able to push forward in our laboratory group. And we're so blessed to be able to work together as a team and develop these ideas. I feel really fortunate to be able to have worked with John now for a decade and see him grow these ideas uh, from just a spark of a conversation. And this Brain Genie one has come from over 15 years of research that I started back when I was in California at the University of California, San Diego, where we really only were looking in the peripheral blood for biomarkers that might be indicators of disease. And at a certain point we said, well, can we leverage this blood gene expression, not just as a biomarker, not just as an indicator of disease, but to gain some insight into what's actually going on in the brain of people when they're sick. And so that's how Brain Genie helps us. As John mentioned, it takes advantage of this government funded study, GTEx, in which there are some uh, hundreds of individuals who donated their bodies to science. And once they passed away, they calculated gene expression levels, the amount of mRNA in a whole host of tissues. And fortunately for our purposes, one of those tissues was blood and 12 other of those tissues were in the brain. And so based on those deceased donors, John was able to map the relationship of when you're expressing this amount of gene X in your blood, you might be expressing this amount in brain region one and a different amount in brain region two and a different amount in brain region three and so on. And once we mapped those relationships in GTEx, now we have a mapping function, let's call it, where whenever we get a blood sample and we measure the expression level of gene X, we can make some better or worse, depending on the gene, uh, prediction about what might be going on in the brain of that individual. So now we no longer need post-mortem brain from individuals. We just need their blood sample. And when we get that blood sample and measure their gene expression, we can make some educated guesses about how much of each gene is being expressed in different brain regions. Now, as a snapshot of what's going on in an individual, that's pretty cool. But if you think about how you could use this over time, as kids develop, we could take multiple blood samples from them and figure out not just how their blood biomarkers are changing, but what might be happening in their brain as they're growing and going through developmental phases. Or if somebody's going through treatment for a brain tumor and we can figure out from their blood sample how much of a gene is being expressed in a certain brain region and how that relates to whether they're getting healthier, not doing well. 
uh, or as people age, for example, if we take a blood sample from someone at 65 years of age and they're doing well cognitively, and then at 70 years of age, we take another blood sample and they're starting to show some mild cognitive impairment. Not only can we have a blood biomarker of that, but we might be able to figure out, aha, in one of these 12 brain regions, this level of expression has really diminished over time. And that might be related to the fact that they're losing some cognitive ability. So I think the, the applications of this are really limitless and it's a fundamental game changer. And I'm glad that the reviewers of our grant proposal recognized that and the NIH recognized that and gave us funding to continue to develop the work. It sounds really exciting. Now, let me ask you, do you believe the same genes might be responsible for a variety of different mental illnesses, or do you think each illness has a different genetic root? Well, that's a, that's a big question, Amber, and one that I have an opinion on, but no proof as of yet, although there's some evidence to support it. I happen to believe that there's a core set of genes that predispose people toward brain disorders, and those are largely shared uh, whether you have a developmental disorder like autism or a disorder of early adulthood like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or a disorder perhaps even of, of aging and neurodegeneration like Alzheimer's disease. But certainly among those disorders that onset in childhood or early adulthood, I think there's a core set of genes that put you at risk for a brain disorder of some sort. And then there's probably other sets of genes that push you more toward an early developmental onset disorder or a later developmental onset disorder, and probably other sets of what we would call modifier genes that push it more toward an anxiety disorder or a psychotic disorder or a mood disorder. So yeah, I do think there are core sets of genes for brain disorders, but I think there's probably lots of genes that lead to some specificity of a particular brain disorder too. Well, Dr. Hess, let me ask you, why is one of the goals to make Brain Genie available to other researchers? That's a great question, Amber. So, so we subscribe in lab to the spirit of open science. And what that is, is to make research and analytical tools that come from research as accessible and as transparent as possible. And as Steve has mentioned, there are countless applications for Brain Genie and other derivatives of this tool that could happen in the future. And it would be to the benefit of science as a whole if more people can get access to it and carry out the same type of vision that we have for this tool in terms of downstream applications to disease, um, finding preventions for disease, finding novel treatment targets for disease, and just improving well-being for people as a whole. Well, I the bottom line is we can't do it all ourselves, Amber. So we're counting on other people to pay attention, take note, and catch that excitement that we feel about how big of a game changer this is and start to use it in their own labs to study diseases of interest to them. I thank you both for taking the time to share your research. My guests have been Dr. John Hess, an assistant professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences, and Dr. Stephen Glatt, a professor who directs the Psych Gene Lab at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air.